What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I want to tell you guys about a brand new podcast coming to our luminary slate called Sonic Boom. For more than four decades, the Seattle Supersonics were among the NBA's most iconic franchises. But in 2008, they packed their bags for Oklahoma. Hosted by the Ringer's Jordan Ritter-Kahn, Sonic Boom tells the story of basketball and politics, wealth and power, and reveals new truths about the NBA's greatest heist. You can find the eight-episode documentary podcast exclusively on Luminary starting October 3rd. Thank you very much. Welcome. Welcome, George, to um, not only to LA Live Talks, but to... Black on the Air, my podcast. <laughs> George, and I know when you wrote The Conservative Sensibility, I know you were thinking, you know what, if I can only get on Black on the Air. Well, <laughs> I, I know, I think of Los Angeles as ground zero for yeah. The Conservative Sensibility. Yes. <laughs> ground zero is appropriate, I think, for that. It's very good. Um, let me just say, I've been a fan of Mr. Wills for a long time now, um, I started to read. I think your columns used to be in Newsweek as well, right? I was in Newsweek for yeah. about 35 years, yeah. and my column today is still in about 440 newspapers that's syndicated by the Washington Post. Yeah. That's what we call a baller comment right there. <laughs> yeah, 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 Larry. It's still in all these, but um, always enjoyed your work. I miss you. I told you earlier, I miss you on the, on the ABC Weekend Show. I thought... Uh, that was a great show. And we miss Cokie Roberts Indeed. a lot, too, who just passed away. He was great in that show, too. Um, so I was joking about this book. You're not kidding around with the... Just, have you, the size of this book is amazing. This is not what I would call a bathroom book, George. No, I, I, it's not a beach book. I don't think no. there's a lot of copper tone spilled on that. Yes, on yes. The, on the chapter about the difference in Locke and Hobbes on the state of nature. Yes, yeah. People are reading Hobbes and Shaw rather than... Uh, <laughs> see how I did that? Just did a little Hobbes, Hobbesian humor there for this L.A. Crowd. Thanks for coming out, by the way, you guys. <laughs> this is awesome. I love... This is a... It looks like a real uh, a red crowd here in Georgia, if I may. That's what, that's what I'm guessing here. Um, now, one thing I wanted to ask you in reading the book, it's, it's very interesting. Well, the title strikes me to the conservative sensibility, not conservative philosophy, but sensibility. Well, why that particular title? Well, look, uh, by sensibility, I mean more than an attitude, but less than an agenda. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in suggesting how a conservative would try to think about complex problems, right. but also how to react to a world of flux and change and excitement. Sure. Someone once said the Bible, reduced to one sentence, says, God created man and woman and then lost control of events. (laughs) The conservative sensibility finds the last loss of control exhilarating. Mm -hmm. It it finds the spontaneous order of a market society exciting. Mm -hmm. The absence of control a virtue, that you want things to be uncontrolled, unpredictable, the fecundity of freedom allowed to come through the cracks in society, and um, a general untidiness is welcome and uh, a sign of freedom. In many ways, it sounds Darwinian in some aspects. Well, it's, it's Darwinian in the sense that the market winnows out winners and losers. Mm-hmm. It, it tests success and uh, eventually things sort out and the winners then face challenges and they become 
supplanted. That's the nature of, of an open, free society. Mm-hmm. What's um, struck me about your book, too, I wanted to ask you, I wasn't sure if this was a book that was more informative of your ideas of conservatism or defensive of your ideas well, of conservatism. Well, for reasons too obvious to dwell on, it's a, a time when the name conservatism is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it is time to say, A, American conservatism is unlike European conservatism in that European conservatism began really with Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. It was a recoil against disorder and necessarily a defense of order and stratified society and hierarchy. European conservatism is inevitably tainted, in my judgment, by its origins in a kind of blood and soil, kind of uh, thrown and altar traditionalism. Almost tied to structures and land yes. in some ways. Right? And, yeah. and Margaret Thatcher was quite right when she said Ameri- European nations were made by history, America was made by philosophy. Mm-hmm. And the philosophy, in my judgment, is conservatism. That's, people sensibly ask, what do you want to conserve? And the answer is the American founding, understood as the doctrine of natural rights, which is that there are certain rights essential to the flourishing of people with our natures, that therefore there is a constant human nature. We are more than people who acquire whatever culture we're in. And that this, this presupposes first come rights and then comes the government. Government doesn't give us our rights. It exists to secure them. Mm-hmm. The most telling word in the Declaration of Independence is secure. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. First come rights, then comes government. This inherently limits the scope and competence of government. We want government to be strong enough to protect our rights and not too strong to threaten them, Mm -hmm. which then brings us to the third, the institutional strand of conservatism, which is a powerful belief in the separation of powers and, as you see in the book, a strong recoil against the modern presidency and all that it's become, the swollen, pretentious, ultimately dangerous, unhinged executive power. Yeah, what's um, interesting that struck me is that you know, when you talk about natural rights and those sorts of things, and part of um, where I'm supposing that was drawn from are places like the Bible or the Torah or those sorts of things from religion, but also from, you know, writings of Locke and that sort of thing. Um, what, um, where do you, do you think this was a system that is, was truly revolutionary or was something that already existed, but no one like actually put it into place? It was revolutionary in the 17th century when Hobbes and then Locke mm-hmm. began to write about it. It was revolutionary, in fact, in the 18th century, mm-hmm. when the French Revolution and the American Revolution and, and others came along. The, their precursor, of course, was the Glorious Revolution in England in uh, 1688. But it, it is, I think, safe to say that the ideas are still revolutionary. The, uh, when the students in Tiananmen Square put up a Statue of Liberty. When the people in Hong Kong, where I've just been, 
uh, are singing the American national anthem and waving the stars and stripes, our ideas are still unsettling to people who believe government comes first and government gives us such rights as it thinks we deserve. Yes, and uh, your opening chapter, I thought is an interesting title, the, the epistemological assertion of the founders. And, uh, and I guess what you're asserting in that is that these are rights that have nothing to do with opinion or times or whatever. When you use terms like self, self-evident, um, endowed by your creator, yeah. and those types of terms kind of when imply Jefferson, that. Is yeah, that right? When Jefferson used the phrase, we hold these shoes to be self-evident, right. they meant obvious to all minds that are not clouded by ignorance or superstition. Mm-hmm. So it's a... It's a <laughs> that leaves out a few minds. Yeah. Uh, but these were, these were people of the Enlightenment. They believed mm-hmm. in the power of reason to uh, ascertain important truths, not opinions. These were not... It was up to Nietzsche to came along a century later and said there are no facts, only interpretations. Mm-hmm. The founders and the people of the Enlightenment believed there were facts, and uh-huh. they were discernible by our, our natures. And among the facts that we could learn are the best forms of government. So in that beginning, what, what were the major fights? Were, was it over how you display these rights, or was it over the idea of these rights themselves? First you had to, how you defined them. People could have different opinions about what rights were important. Second, how you protected them. Uh, Was it possible to have people running around asserting their rights and still have a less than anarchic society? Mm -hmm. The the great break in, in modern thought was when people said, you know, people have different goals different ideas of the ultimate good, and we're just going to have to learn to live with one another. We're not going to have, as the ancient philosophers had, we're going, the, the government would aim for the definite article, the best. People said, no, from now on, we're going to let people decide what the best is and try to form a society that can handle this diversity, this pluralism, this perpetual argument and conflict. If you don't like argument, you pick the wrong country. Because America is a really an argumentative place. By the way, you said a moment ago that, mm-hmm. uh, that the doctrine of natural rights often comes from the Torah, the Bible, etc. Mm-hmm. The chapter in my book, of which I'm proudest and that I had most fun writing, is called Conservatism Without Theism. Yes, I, was, I, am, I, I wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> I, I have described myself as an amiable, low-voltage atheist. Uh, I'm married to a ferocious Presbyterian. Uh, my grandfather's, my father's father was a Lutheran minister. Mm-hmm. My father, as a young boy, would sit outside Pastor Will's study and listen to Pastor Will and a more reflective uh, congregants worry about how to accommodate the doctrine of grace and free will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that made my father a philosopher. And uh, the question of uh, faith never came up. I, I just, you know, I just don't feel the need for it. Uh, and it seemed to me important, particularly in the American context, to say it is simply not necessary to have a theological reference behind conservatism. When you say it's not necessary, though, but it does, the conservative argument 
um, usually has it in place as a necessary component. You know, that it is important when you talk about inalienable rights, that these are rights that are endowed by the creator, that those words are important. Well, what Jefferson's great fudge was, mm-hmm. it is endowed by, by, by nature or nature's God. Uh-huh. <laughs> he said, take your pick. Uh, that Jefferson was out of control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Jefferson was, was not in any meaningful sense religious. It's sometimes said our founders were deists. Yeah, he's been called well, that. Well, it seems to me a religion uh, explains, enjoins, and consoles. Mm-hmm. Deism explains, it says the universe is a great clockwork. God wound it up and then absconded and... That's that's such a watery religion. I don't think anyone. Any, someone said yeah. deism. The deist god is like a rich aunt in Australia, <laughs> benevolent but rarely heard from. Yes, There's, someone's always salty about the idea of God when they don't believe in God. I always believe that. Yes. And so I was like, well, if God doesn't exist, or if God exists, then why is there evil in the world? So you're just mad at God, is what it sounds like. I'm not mad at God. I'm, I, 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 I can't be mad at someone I don't think is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I, I wasn't accusing you of being mad at God. Good. With your argument. <laughs> but it is, but it does seem that... Now, oh, let me ask you this. So when, we, when you're talking about conservatism and you're talking about the founders and their ideas, of course, at the time, that wasn't called conservatism. Um, and I guess maybe one way you might refer to it as Madisonian government, possibly, is that... Or... Or, as I say in the book, we mm-hmm. are, we conservatives, are the legatees of classic liberalism. Right. That comes from Locke through John Stuart Mill, and in our time, Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, we start with individualism. Individuals are rights-bearing creatures. And the idea of liberty at the center of that, right? Liberty at the center. The mm-hmm. liberty of the individual. Not right. the liberty of a group, not the liberty of a caste, not the liberty of a class, Mm-hmm. Not the liberty of a guild, individualism. Mm-hmm. Or rugged individualism in America. Very. In some ways. Um, when did conservatism first become an idea as a term? I think it began in England mm-hmm. with Burke. Uh, it crossed the Atlantic and in the American context became very individualistic. Mm-hmm. And it entered, it, it's interesting, the... the it's taken on different contexts. It has. Over time, in, the, right? in the 1950s, uh, after the Second World War, there was a consensus school of American historians saying America is characterized by a vast liberal consensus. Liberal understood as a sort of Franklin Roosevelt kind of mm-hmm. liberalism. At about that time, conservatism began to stir as a reaction against this somewhat oppressive consensus and self-satisfied and complacent consensus. Mm-hmm. It began in a way when uh, young Bill Buckley from uh, fresh out of Yale in 1955 founded National Review. Right. In 1964, the man to whom your inspiration my uh, book is dedicated, The mm-hmm. Memory of Barry Goldwater, for whom I cast my first presidential <laughs> vote. I had a lot of experience losing, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. Barry lost 44 states. Um, I started uh, with Mondo, so... You (laughs) You lost 49. I can relate, yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Go Dukakis! Mm. (laughs) But uh, uh, 
people began to say that the, the, the consensus needs challenged. And be, Goldwater was so badly defeated that an enormous number of Democrats were swept into Congress that mm-hmm. year. Between 1938 and 1964, there was no liberal legislating majority in Congress. Roosevelt lost it in 1938, and my progressive friend should remember this, because in 1937, he said, the Supreme Court is a nuisance to my yes, to the New yes, Deal. That's right. Let's pack the Supreme <laughs> yes. Court. Well, uh, his own party in Congress wouldn't go along with him. Yeah. So he set out in the 1938 elections to purge the Democratic Party of those who had opposed him. Mm-hmm. All the people he tried to get purged won in spite of him. And in the reaction against Roosevelt's overreaching, a, a, the liberal legislating majority in Congress disappeared between 38 and 64, there was a coalition between Republicans and conservative Democrats. Mm -hmm. That was broken with the emergence of the liberal legislating majority when the Congress that convened in 1965. And by the time they were done, not just with Medicare and Medicaid, but with the anti-poverty programs and the enormous expansion of welfare and all the rest, Mm -hmm. people had doubts. And in 1966, there was an enormous snapback in the midterm elections. In 1968, uh, the Republicans began a run in which they won four out of five and five out of seven presidential elections. With with Nixon in the middle of that. Nixon in the middle of that, followed by uh, Reagan and then Bush. Mm -hmm. So our our politics, the pendular work in our politics goes on. and it, it worked then as we had. We, we began in 1960 to have a serious argument about the proper scope and actual competence of government. And that's, I guess that's where you would trace the modern conservative um, movement. Um, you kind of trace the modern liberal or progressive movement back to Wilson. I wonder if it goes back even to Teddy Roosevelt in some ways. I think it does. Teddy yeah. Roosevelt was a protean force. Someone called him a steam shovel in trousers. <laughs> yeah. He was just an enormous, uh, energetic he man. He got shot giving a speech and kept giving the speech. Right? He, was, he was in Milwaukee giving a speech. They shot him. He talked for an hour and a quarter with a bullet in his chest. Yeah. He was when, gangster before it was even a term. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's straight up gangster. Teddy Roosevelt, really, his, his instincts were given a kind of philosophic codification by yeah. Woodrow Wilson. Roosevelt despised Wilson, who he thought was, was a feat and a professor and all these things. That, <laughs> sure. I mean, not that Roosevelt was anti-intellectual. Roosevelt read poetry in seven languages, including Hungarian. I mean, he was an astonishing, vigorous intellect. Mm-hmm. But he was most of all energy straight through. Yeah. And his theory of the presidency was uh, what he called the stewardship idea, that a president is free to do anything he's not explicitly forbidden to do. Well, hmm. this was the this, <laughs> was the this was the germ of the modern presidency. Mm-hmm. And along comes Woodrow Wilson, says the following: the idea of the separation of powers, he said, and the checks and balances that slows down our government, was all right when there were only four million Americans and eighty percent of them lived within twenty miles of Atlantic tidewater. Not wrong, but. 
He says, now we're a great nation united by steel rails and copper wires, and we need a nimble, effective government that can't be inhibited by the separation of powers. We have to marginalize Congress, and we have to have an emancipated presidency uh, free to work. Well, the man who came to work in Washington as Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy mm -hmm. Roosevelt's distant cousin, right. uh, had a whole new idea of the role of the presidency enabled by a new technology called radio. Now, we're so excited by the internet and social media and all that stuff, we cannot <laughs> understand how revolutionary radio was mm -hmm. to the American people and to some very bad people such as Hitler who found this, this new way of communicating with masses of people uh, intoxicating and effective. When Roosevelt sat down to give his first fireside chat after he was inaugurated, he began with two words that do not appear in the transcript of the broadcast that's in the library at Hyde Park. The two words were, my friends. Mm -hmm. Now, try to imagine austere, aristocratic, Virginia gentleman, George Washington, addressing anyone as my friends. What is really different, now we've had a president who said he felt our pain, Bill Clinton and all the rest, so we're, we're this mm -hmm. false intimacy between presidents and the American people is now <laughs> perfectly routine. But think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Do you really want the president I'm not referring to this president, but... Mm -hmm. Everything really, you say is actually about this president. I want you to know that. Do you really want presidents to be our friends? I want the president to fulfill his fundamental Article II duty in the Constitution, which is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Mm -hmm. The president is the head of one of the three branches of one of our many governments. The idea that he is this kind of sacerdotal figure, the national pastor, our moral tutor, the expresser of our innermost desires, the consoler of us when mm -hmm. we're sad. That is investing politics with a, a, a dignity and a semi-religious psychological function that I think is inimical to good government. Although, well, well go for it, clap. Um, I would only make the distinction between what you're saying, good government, and what I would call effective leadership, possibly. Mm -hmm. Because we have to remember, during that time, it was the Great Depression. You know, people were losing everything, George. I mean, as you, I don't have to tell you, you know. Um, people, it's one of the reasons why I think communism kind of took hold, you know, for a while, too. You know, people were willing to try anything. As it seemed, people didn't know if the United States was even going to survive, as, you know, during those times. People were desperate. They had nothing. And I believe that Roosevelt, more than anything, was comfort food for America during that time. I think you're right. He was you know, human mac and cheese. He was, yes. Exactly. Uh, on wheels, uh, literally. Uh, someone, he was meals on wheels. Yeah. Someone once... Someone <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm proud of that one, actually. Yeah. Larry Wilmore says, Roosevelt, meals on wheels. Someone once wisely said of Roosevelt, his philosophy was his smile. Yes. And indeed... He said, it, it, when he said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Right. He said, uh, uh, it is a, it's a civic duty to be cheerful and optimistic, yes. to think we can do this. 
I think it was Mario Cuomo said Roosevelt got up, stood up from his wheelchair to get the country off its knees. And it's quite right. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which Ronald Reagan, whose formative years mm -hmm. as a, as a, politically were the 1930s, mm -hmm. um, Ronald Reagan, who took over a country racked by inflation, uh, had lost in Vietnam, had Watergate, had a, a president uh, uh, not very effective in Jimmy Carter and the hostage crisis. Patriotic morale. And along know. came Ronald Reagan and said, uh, cheer up, this is going to be fine. Uh, and, and, and optimism again was... People were like, well, he acted with the monkey, maybe he's okay, we don't know. Exactly. <laughs> but it, yeah, it is interesting how... The role of the president sometimes is at odds with the movement that could be going on or sometimes in line with it. Um, when you mention um, Roosevelt kind of taking that mantle, I, it was interesting how you also talked about, um, well, you mentioned the Triangle Shirtways uh, factory fire, which is also, I think, an inciting incident where the reforms that New York kind of did and Al Smith was kind of the leader of that who actually ran for president in 28. You know, I almost feel like Roosevelt stole some of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of the exact same programs that New York did, and New York did for very practical reasons, yeah. you know, were kind of put on a national scale. And it kind of talks about the divide between what's done at the local level to help people for very practical reasons and then what the federal government adopts for everybody. Is yeah. that fair? Sure. For, for mm -hmm. those of you who may have forgotten the day in your this kind of arcane history, sorry. high school <laughs> civics class where they talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist fires was, I think, 1911. 1911. And there was a fire at a sh woman's clothing manufacturer mm -hmm. uh, where mostly the people working were young immigrant women. Absolutely. And the fire broke out, and in order to keep the young women from pilfering cloth, the owner of the factory had locked the doors. And when the fire broke out, it was a catastrophe, and an enormous number of people died. And the government of New York responded as a model for the future in the country. So we're not just going to correct things, bad things that happen. We're going to try and prevent bad things from happening. Yeah, and, and it was the germ, really, of activist government. Yes, having tea that day in a cafe near the shirtwaist factory was Francis Perkins who became the first Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor and the first woman cabinet member in the United States. Yeah, so it's interesting that these movements both, so now we have liberalism kind of taking hold in America with the New Deal, as you, you kind of call it middle liberalism? Or? Yeah, well, the progressives were remarkably forthright as well as remarkably successful in rejecting the founders. I mean, Wilson didn't, mm -hmm. didn't uh, prettify it. He said the founders were wrong. They, were, they are now anachronistic. We need to get rid of the separation of power, stronger presidency. We must understand that people need regulated. They need experts to come in. And, and progressivism became the doctrine of concentrate more and more power in Washington, more and more Washington power in the presidency, mm -hmm. more and more power through the president into independent agencies, what we now call the administrative state, that will regulate American life. The basic conservative objection to this is that governments cannot know enough about the doings of, today there are 327 million of us in this country making literally hundreds of billions of decisions a day through private markets that 
cause a complicated society to prosper. And when government says, well, we're going to organize this, what you get is something like you have today with protectionism under the current administration. The government is telling the American people what they can buy, in what quantities, and at what prices through protectionism. Government doesn't know enough to do this. Um, what do you think... Um, do you think that Goldwater made a mistake by opposing the civil rights legislation of the Un- 60s? Unquestionably. It was the biggest mistake of his career. No one ever thought Barry Goldwater had racist sentiments. He mm-hmm. integrated the Arizona National Guard. The Goldwater department stores were leaders in, in uh, desegregating uh, Phoenix. Mm-hmm. He just thought that there were, and a lot of people did at the time, were constitutional problems with the public accommodation section and and the rest. Unquestionably, the 1964 Civil Rights Act with the public accommodation section and the Voting Rights Act of 65 65. Mm -hmm. two of the half-dozen greatest acts of Congress ever. And Goldwater was was wrong about that. The way in which he was wrong is kind of some of my critique about the way in which conservatism handles certain things in the real world, you know, because I feel like conservatism is is one of those things, and correct me if I'm wrong, where the existence of it, let's say, and I'm kind of being esoteric, so I apologize, it's, it's supposed to, these principles are these principles regardless of the situation. There's no moral relativism here. It doesn't matter what times we're in. These principles are true principles. Is that fair? No. Okay. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. That's why I asked. No, because (laughs) what prudent, the the fundamental conservative virtue is prudence. And prudence is the skill to apply principles that are crystalline and clear and, and true, but to apply them to messy reality. Okay. Conservatism is... And this sort of goes directly against your your question. Mm-hmm. Conservatism is above all an acceptance of the messiness of life. The fact is, as, as Immanuel Kant said, no, nothing straight shall ever be made of the crooked timber of humanity. Mm-hmm. And a society is confusing and democracy is t- tumultuous. Get over it. Live with it. Because... Where you really get into trouble in politics is when you try to make it clear and tidy and not messy. Right. A woman uh, recently elected to the House of Commons in Britain gave her maiden speech, and she said, democracy is like sex. If it's not messy, you're not doing it right. Uh, wow. And, uh, Sounds like the, something Jefferson this might is, have this said. Is a, <laughs> this is... A, <laughs> This is an adult audience here. We can talk about these things. Uh, and, and that, again, it goes back to God created men and women and lost control. That mm-hmm. goes back to the conservative sense that government shouldn't control us. Mm-hmm. We want the, the fecundity, the creativity, the exhilaration, the surprises sure. that come with freedom. Okay, so my argument against that, you know, or I guess one reason why maybe I'm salty about that is that I feel there are some instances where there are injuries to people where I feel government has to intervene. And, and racism, I believe, is one of those injuries where um, racism 
was institutional. I mean, it was against a group of people. There was, you know, the history of slavery. I can't imagine government thinking, well, life is messy, you guys, sorry. One day, maybe we'll get over it. One day, we won't. That yeah. is unacceptable. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. And, and Jim Crow, remember, was a government program. Absolutely. Jim Crow was a majority rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me tell you where my conservatism comes from. I grew up in central Illinois, mm-hmm. Lincoln country. I grew up in Champaign-Urbana. My father was a professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois. According to local lore, it was in the Champaign County Courthouse, a great red sandstone building on the square in Urbana, that Lincoln, a very prosperous, successful railroad lawyer, Mm -hmm. was transacting business when he heard in 1854 about the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Mm -hmm. Kansas-Nebraska Act was written by another uh, Illinoisan, Stephen A. Douglas, the senator who said, Here's how we'll solve the question of whether to expand slavery into the territories. We'll submit it to a vote. Popular sovereignty in the territories. And that's what they instituted with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Lincoln's recoil against that act launched his career, in my judgment, the greatest career in the history of world politics. Mm -hmm. Lincoln said, no, America is not about majority rule. Majority rule is supposed to serve what America is about, liberty. And when it doesn't, we don't believe in majority rule. We don't submit everything to a vote. Or mob rule. as Mob rule, exactly. Yes. Uh, and, and people tend to forget that, that it was majorities liked Jim Crow. That's why they put those laws in place in the South. Mm-hmm. And they they forget that when Brown v. Board of Education, the great school desegregation decision in 1954, was unpopular not just in the South but in the North. How many of you remember the state from which the Brown case came? It was Kansas. Kansas. Mm-hmm. It was Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, where they had segregated schools. Mm-hmm. So... Um, conservatism of my sort, and I have a chapter in the book called The Judicial Supervision of Democracy, where I say, mm-hmm. conservatives have been wrong all these years saying we want the courts to defer to majority rule. No, courts exist. Courts are derelict in their duty when they do not say there are many things that majorities may not do. If you look at the Bill of Rights, is a is a tapestry of prohibitions. There shall be no abridgment of freedom of speech, even if a majority wants it. Even if a majority wants an established church, can't have it, sorry, because we have, we have, we want majority rule, but we have hedged it in. The great Madison, St. James in my church, uh, the great Madison said, look, we're going to have democracy. We want democracy, and democracy means that majorities are going to have their way eventually. Therefore, said Madison, We want majority passions to be filtered and refined through institutions, through different institutions. The House is interestingly different from the Senate. We want judicial review, supermajorities, veto, veto overrides, all kinds of ways to slow it down so that opinion can be filtered and moderated and made sensible. Madison had a wonderful phrase. What he wanted was mitigated democracy. And I think that's still a good idea. 
So why would you, um, you brought up Jim Crow, why would you think um, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is, you know, has its opportunity in front of a minority, I, the, in front of judges, why did the right thing not happen? It's, well, it's, it, I have a, in my book a, uh, a it <laughs> makes wonderful Christmas card. <laughs> yes. But, uh, uh, David Souter, the, the uh, now retired Supreme Court Justice, gave a wonderful speech at Harvard that I quote in here at length, in which he said, why did the justices in Plessy think separate but equal was yes. okay? Correct. And he said, well, one reason was these justices were elder gentlemen, so the Civil War was a living memory. And separate but equal was so much better than slavery that they could not fathom. It was just a, a, the social stereotypes didn't fit. They could not fathom what was wrong with separate but equal, even if separate had been equal, which, of course, it never was. By 1954... The Civil War was not a living memory. Slavery was not a living memory. We had moved on, and, and the nine justices said, well, no, uh, separate is inherently a stigma, a, a badge of inferiority, and it has to go. And so it was, it was just, it was a, a, the Earl Warren in, in a, 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 another case, unrelated, had a phrase that was quite right. He said, uh, the evolving standards of decency that mark the maturation of a free society. And we, our standards of decency have evolved. That's why he was, Earl Warren was so interested in criminal justice reform, Miranda warnings mm -hmm. and all that. Before Earl Warren was Chief Justice, he was governor of the state of California. Before he was governor of California, he was attorney general. Before he was attorney general, he was a district attorney. And he knew what went on in the back rooms of police stations. Mm -hmm. And fast forward to when he's Chief Justice, he did something about it. He was it. appointed by Eisenhower, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Goldwater was not a fan of Warren, right? Uh No. <laughs> the circle is complete. <laughs> exactly. Conservatism has had uh, many mansions. Yeah. It, it, uh, it's, uh, it, it's had lots of factionalism. Yeah. Where do you put Ronald Reagan um, in that line? Is he the fulfillment of the Goldwater promise? Is he bringing in something new to conservatism? Does he have his own ideas about it? He brought two things to conservatism okay. that Barry did not have. First, remember Ronald Reagan's public career ignited when he gave a speech for Barry Goldwater toward the end in October 64, right before the election. It's called A Time to Choose. It was actually written for Barry to give. Barry read it and said, doesn't sound like me, get Ronnie to do it. <laughs> 16 years later, Ronnie is president. Yeah. Uh, largely because of a career that that speech ignited. First of all, Goldwater was kind of cranky. Mm -hmm. He was gruff and uh, uh, abrupt. It and served him well when he was older, because everybody loves an older cranky Everybody loves guy. a cranky old man. <laughs> as when I, you're older, it's fine to be as cranky. As I am finding out. Yeah, uh, right. the, uh, exactly. But, uh, so Gold, he, he brought a cheerfulness, Reagan did. Mm -hmm. But he brought... Uh, Go, Reagan was reconciled to the basic social safety net 
in a way that Goldwater was. And also, Goldwater was not a reflective person. Uh, Reagan was. People, it, it, it took an enormous number of people a very long time to begin to figure out that Ronald Reagan had thought. Mm-hmm. It, it, the crucial moment came when uh, 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 two of Reagan's former aides published a thick volume of his letters. And people saw a different a Reagan they didn't know, a man who wrote, who read. I remember when I got very early on the bound galleys of David McCullough's biography of Harry Truman. Mm-hmm. And I was talking on the phone with Nancy Reagan, who was a good friend, and I said, I'm reading these bound galleys. And she says, oh, Ronnie's already read those. He was a voracious reader. Wow. And um, again, see, people still surprised. Uh, but uh, that's another thing that he, he, he brought to the, to the presidency that uh, Goldwater would not have. And it, yeah, almost a cheerful yeah. cheerfulness and that sort of thing. It seemed like conservatism at that time, and I may be conflating him with republicanism, and I'd love for you to speak about the differences of that too. Where do you make the distinction between republican and conservative? Because to me it seems like there's intertwining of that, it separates, it becomes this monster, it backs up, it, you know, it gets redefined. I feel like there's a war right now between I wouldn't say war between conservatives and Republicans, but there certainly seems to be a Oh, I think it's a, it's a war. Yeah. Yeah. I was it's, trying to be it, kind. It's a war if, if I have anything to say about it. And I, and I have, <laughs> well, you want you to have, I have 500 say, pages <laughs> to say about it. <laughs> Look, the Republican Party up today is more united than it has been arguably since it was founded in Beloit, Wisconsin in 1854. Here's what I mean by that. In 1912, there was a huge split in the Republican Party because Teddy Roosevelt, ex-Republican president, wanted to be president again. Yes. <laughs> so he challenged his friend and mentee, William Howard Taft, the incumbent yeah. president, for the Republican nomination. He lost, but the split was there. Mm. That split was replicated, replicated in the 1940s by the Dewey against the Taft Republicans. In the 1960s, by the Goldwater Republicans against the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Republicans. Republicans. Today, there's no split. Today, the party is more the possession of, the, of today's president than it ever was Ronald Reagan's. At the 500-day mark of Ronald Reagan's presidency, he had the support of 77% of Republicans. At the 500-day mark of the Trump presidency, he had the support of 87% of Republicans. There's no argument anymore, and there's no conservatism. Protectionism is everything conservatism isn't. Populism is everything that conservatism isn't. Populism says we want the direct transmission of public passions mm-hmm. through a direct leader who says, only I can fix it. Right. Uh, that's everything Madison was against. Mm-hmm. Madison said, first of all, passions are the problem in politics. We don't want leaders who arouse passions. That's what the, the authors of the Federalist Papers called practicing the popular arts, and they did not mean that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. The word leader appears 13 times in the Federalist Papers, once in an anodyne uh, reference to the leaders of the revolution, 12 times as a disparagement. Mm-hmm. 
because leaders were threatened. They aroused passions. Indeed, that's what's happening around the world. That's, that's what populists do, is rise passions, whether you're the current president or whether you're Huey Long in the 1920s and 30s Louisiana. That is the opposite of conservatism. Um, is it authoritarianism or at the beginnings of it? Well, it's, it, it, it's, it contains the germ of authoritarianism. Our institutions are so strong. Mm -hmm. and That's so, not a concern of yours. That... It, it, it really isn't. You know, mm -hmm. some people say the current president is authoritarian. Good God. He can't get his two choices to be members of the Federal Reserve Board. <laughs> right. Real tyrants occupy the Sudetenland and invade Poland. That's what they look like. Mm -hmm. Not this fella. <laughs> do you think, um, uh, how do you think this happened? I mean, when did the Republican Party realize it didn't need conservatism, it only needed to be in power? Well, I, uh, I'd say the morning after the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. Do you think it up, happened when... They woke up, look, the, these Republicans were all for free trade. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump said, no, you're not. They said, okay, we're not. Uh, <laughs> which indicates that some of them weren't terribly serious people. Uh -huh. uh, remember, uh, fewer than 78,000 votes spread over three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, decided this. Right. If Jill Stein had not been on the ballot for the Green Party, Hillary Clinton would be president today. Mm -hmm. So this is a real narrow thing that happened. Do you think Trump is destroying conservatism? No. Uh, conservatism is uh, today a persuasion without a party. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it doesn't find a party to be a vehicle, it will wither and not be... It, the conservatives will go the way of the Whig Party. Hmm. But uh, the Whig Party, the Republican Party was at one point a th an insurgent third party. Mm -hmm. That's where it's birth, and it, it, right. put, it put away the Whig Party. Uh, for now, conservatism doesn't have a home, and if it pretends it has a home, it will quit being conservatism. Mm -hmm. Has... Um it's funny because going back to Goldwater, many people felt in his later years he was kind of more of a libertarian, he was called, you know. Well, I think conservatives are libertarians. American conservatives are classic liberals, are mm -hmm. libertarians. Now, that, that, that's not a, an iron doctrine. I'm a soft, squishy libertarian <laughs> in that I believe that before the government interferes with the freedom of the individual or mm -hmm. of two or more individuals cooperating together, it ought to have a good reason and it ought to say what it is and it ought to withstand judicial scrutiny. That's all. Mm -hmm. But that's basic garden variety Americanism. Why do you think we're in a time now where it seems like the fringes, and by fringes I'll say, you know, normally what's happened in politics, the middle always seems to govern, you know. No matter how, you know, who runs in primaries, the middle ends up governing in most cases. You know, and so there have been cases where maybe it's been closer to one side or another. You know, uh, you bring up Johnson, Roosevelt, those kind of examples, Reagan on that side. But for the most part, it's done in the middle. But now it seems like... Um, the ends of the of the movements, both on the right and the left. I think um, this is truly one of those both sides now type of thing is happening in America. 
And it's happening in a more powerful way because it's becoming mainstream. Yes. Um, why do you think that is happening now? That's a good question. And I'm not it's, saying it's good or no. bad. I'm not making a qualitative <clears throat> judgment. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> the, the, the old saying used to be that American politics takes place within the 40-yard lines, right in the center sure. of the field. And it doesn't anymore, in large part, I think, because of the nominating process of mm -hmm. the two parties, which maximizes the power of the most ideologically intense. The most ideologically intense progressives are very progressive. The most mm -hmm. ideologically intense Republicans are well to the right. Mm -hmm. And because they dominate the nominating process, remember this happened. 1968, the Democrats have a riotous convention in Chicago. <laughs> Literally. And they nominate Hubert Humphrey, who did not enter a single primary. Yeah. He still won the nomination. The McGovern Fraser Commission was appointed to democratize the process. They said, we're going to get rid of the bosses. We're going to open it up to democratic majority rule. So who'd they nominate them four years later? McGovern. George McGovern, who mm -hmm. manages the choice of supposedly of, of the of the majority, and he loses forty nine states. Yeah, because democratic processes aren't always democratic. Let me give you an example, perfectly familiar to everyone in California. Initiatives and referendums are supposedly they were given to you by Hiram Johnson and the great progressives of of the California passes. This will, this will make California more democratic. Nonsense. What it does is it empowers the intense, organized, compact, articulate, and confident minorities that dominate campaigns like that. Mm -hmm. Right now, Britain is paralyzed for three years now over the results of a direct democracy. Mm -hmm. Let's vote on European Union membership. By 52 to 48, they vote to leave. What does leave mean? Hey, they had no idea. <laughs> now they're saying, well, but we didn't understand certain things. Well, of course not. That's what happens when you don't, when you have, don't have Madison's mitigated democracy. You slow things down and you have refinement through institutions and, and well, you got the picture. I feel like um, whenever a side loses, they always want the most changes, you know. Um, I think because Hillary lost and had the popular vote and because Gore lost with the same thing, which is why the Dems wanted to get rid of the Electoral College. But believe me, as soon as the Dems win and some Republican gets a popular vote, Republicans will be lining up to get rid of the Electoral College. Exactly, exactly. It, it is, uh, I don't know who will win the the uh, 2020 election, but... If Would you the, like me to tell you? If, if Mr. <laughs> Trump wins, he will, he will again lose the popular vote. That's a given, mm -hmm. that he will not win the popular vote. And if three... Do you of, think he's going to be reelected? No, but uh, I'm, I'm, it's possible. Uh -huh. And I'm uh, saying so what is impossible is that he win the popular vote. Right. And that would mean that three of the last six elections had been won, had been won by the person who lost the popular vote. And at that point, it becomes difficult to uh, continue to make the argument that I will continue to make that yeah. the Electoral College serves us well. It would be very difficult to defend the Electoral College if Trump really loses that popular vote yeah. and gets elected. It would be very hard to defend. And your argument would when be... When it comes to political 
prophecy. I subscribe to the Zeke Benura principle. Mm -hmm. uh, Zeke was a first baseman, a major league first baseman of spectacular immobility. <laughs> but, but he understood the rule of baseball that you will not be charged with an error if you do not touch the ball. It's so. very good. I like that. Um, <laughs> George, it's been so great talking to you about this. I feel like I can ask you so many questions, but I have to ask you one very important question since you brought that up. How did it feel when the Cubs finally won? Um, it felt wonderful. It was... Um, uh, it was uh, the laws of nature had been suspended. Uh, Are you prepared to wait another hundred years? Whether I'm not, whether I'm prepared to do it or not, <laughs> I expect to have to. Look, I, I'm a baseball nut. Yes. I only write about politics to support my baseball habit, right. which is so severe that my wedding ring, which I designed myself as the Major League Baseball That's logo crazy. on it, it's amazing your wife married yeah. you. Well, it, it's, it was part of the deal. <laughs> yes. It's my way of telling Mari that yeah. in my heart she ranks up there close to baseball. Yes. After your first thing, well, it looks like I got the first base with her. Huh. Hope I get the third base. Would you stop it with the baseball? Um, who wins the World Series this year? Do you have a pick? I'm a season ticket holder to the Nationals. Oh. Uh, who are in a hotel about a mile from here. I see. At the moment. Um, the um, best team doesn't always win, and that's our hope. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that one. That is the, the wit of George Will. All right. Shall we go to some questions? George Will, everybody. How about a nice round of applause? questions. Okay, time for some questions. Just a quick reminder, questions at Live Talks LA typically start with a W or an H, sometimes a D. They are generally short. There is no such thing as a two-part question. And tonight... Are they giving rules or something? What are you, doing? you heard me, Larry. Uh -huh. And tonight only Larry gets to ask follow-up questions. How does a limited government conservative propose dealing with climate change? How does limited government propose dealing with limited climate government change? Conservative. Uh, limited conservative government. Limited, how does a limited Lim government yeah. conservative propose dealing with climate change? Got it. Well, you, you begin with cost-benefit analysis. Uh, I'll tell you what this conservative thinks. People sometimes have called me a climate change denier. It would be impossible to state with greater precision the opposite of my view. Of course the climate's changing because it always has been changing since central Illinois was covered by a hundred feet of glacier. Uh, and I'm glad it changed at that point. Uh, the question, is it sensible to assume that the activities of seven and a half billion people on the planet can affect the climate? Sure. Uh, I've just read a fascinating book called uh, Nature's Mutiny. It's about the little ice age of the late 17th and early 18th century. Uh, and uh, we have no idea what caused it. It's probably the most convulsive climate change to, a, to affect, affect humanity in recorded history. We don't know what did it. It could have been solar activity. There were unusual sunspots at the time that nascent 
astronomical instruments were just being developed that we could record at that time. Long story short, my, this conservative says, of course we follow the science wherever it leads, but we don't pretend that science is settled. Uh, we, we also then say, uh, since we don't really know the mechanics, the extraordinary complex mechanics of the Earth's uh, atmosphere, we say, if, if the sea level is going to continue to rise, and the sea level has been rising for almost two centuries now, well before we had a carbon-based world economy, uh, is it cheaper to change the basis of our current civilization or to take prophylactic protective measures against climate change? So it, all I'm saying is you continue to be empirical. You follow the facts wherever they lead. I noticed... Uh, when the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change produced one of its recent reports, the New Yorker magazine, which is very excited about climate change, began its statement by saying, the, I, the, the panel's latest report, which should be taken, but unfortunately will not be taken as the last word on climate change, now, rewrite that sentence and put in the last word on microbiology, the last word on organic chemistry. It's nonsense. That's not what science... There's no such thing as a last word. Forty years ago, 30 years ago, the last word was don't eat red meat. About a week ago, the government said, well, I'll come think about it. The evidence isn't as strong as we thought it was. All I'm saying is what a conservative's... Conservatism is about facing facts. And it's not about having a 16-year-old Swedish teenager come over and tell us to rearrange the world because uh, she doesn't, she's unhappy with things. Uh, I, am, I, for one, am heartily tired of saying the science is settled, everybody shut up, and, and let's, let's, because suspiciously, in my judgment, the agenda for fighting climate change happens to be exactly the agenda of progressive anyway, which is to increase government's micromanagement of our lives. The government already tells us how much water can come through our shower heads, how much can flow through our toilets, what, what the mileage requirements of our automobiles ought to be. I th I'm, I'm not quite sure that government is so wise and so f full of mastery of the science of this that we can simply say, everybody be quiet, the case is closed. There's no such thing as a closed argument in a scientific realm. Um, I have to say that this is one of those issues that I'm, I'm very confused um, with that point of view from, from conservatives. Um, because these, it's one of those issues, and that's why I brought up the race issue, where like, the government can step in for things for all of society. I'll give an example. During wartime, it's perfectly fine for the government to tell us to ration. Absolutely. You know, and, if, and, it's, and, and, it's, and it's prudence that there, you know, absolutely. There, there's a cause that we're all in there for, and people understand that. Some people are salty about it, not everybody likes it. You know, why are they going to tell me I can't have butter on Tuesdays? You know, that type of talk. But everyone knows what they're doing. It seems like the objection that many conservatives have are to the methodology of the argument, not the argument itself. Like, for instance, um, 
a, a teenager telling me uh, what to do, or I can't have straws, you know, or some of the extreme arguments, rather than, can we be good stewards of this planet in an intelligent way to even, let's say that we're to default in the middle. Can we do all we can, you know, almost take yes. a... Um, uh, some, some advocates of the Green New Deal say... Almost take Pascal's wager when yeah. it comes to climate. <laughs> some of the... Some of the um, <laughs> Some of the advocates of the Green New Deal say, yeah, we did it in wartime. Let's just put America on a permanent war footing. Now, I don't want to live in a society that's on a permanent war footing. Let me, there's this about the climate change rhetoric. Mm -hmm. People are now saying we are doomed. I mean, doomed. Sure. Life on the planet is doomed unless we do X, Y, and Z that they know are not going to be done. Right. They just know that. We are not going to retrofit every American building in the next 10 years. We're not going to do it. We're not going to wean the, the world off fossil fuels in the next 20 years. It's not going to happen. Therefore, if you listen to the logic of this, we're doomed. The fact is we're not doomed. The fact is that the, the, the creativity of the, of the human race in finding substitutes and in... Uh, dealing with the unintended consequences of human activity should not be underestimated, as it is by people who say, we know where the world is going, we know the science is closed, we know that this is going to happen, we know that unless we do X, Y, and Z, we're doomed, and by the way, we know we're not going to do X, Y, and Z. Or, Nothing we know that's not going to happen, therefore we are not doing anything. Well, <laughs> right? It, it seems to me it ill serves the country to say you're doomed unless you do something you know we're not going to do. Sure, yeah. Um, Nothing in the Green New Deal is going to happen in the timetable suggested by the Green New Deal. Nothing. Next question. <laughs> okay. I will ask a question. One of the things that we have not talked about, and I would like some some insight into the conservative sensibility is on women's rights to control their own body. Because it seems to me that the issue of abortion, of reproductive justice seems to come up, and then conservatives are like quite okay with government dictating what we do with our body. Well, as, as I know you know, the argument about abortion is vaccine because... Um, People on one side of it believe there is, and on the other side believe there is not, two human beings involved. And that's what makes this contentious and difficult to solve. Uh, it's very hard to split the difference. Now, it is possible to split the difference. Uh, it's, it seems to me that, that people who say there should be, that it is unthinkable to have restrictions on abortion at any point through the, through the nine months of gestation of a human infant are kind of extreme, frankly. There is no European nation, not one, has an abortion regime nearly as permissive as the United States. Just 13 to 18 weeks is considered extreme, uh, the outer limits of abortion in most European countries. Um, we, uh, our abortion discussion got 
in, in a way, hijacked and distorted by the Supreme Court, which in Roe v. Wade discovered constitutional significance in the fact that the number nine is divisible by three. And they said, well, we're going to have these supposedly a different regime for each trimester. Suppose the number of months involved in the gestation of a human infant were a prime number, 7, 11, 13. What would the Supreme Court have done with that if it couldn't have, as I say, discovered somehow constitutional significance? The fact is, uh, if we had a, a limit that said there could only be abortions in the first trimester, 95% of all abortions that occur would be legal. Uh, it seems to me the extremists in this case are those who say that a, a, an abortion of a, of a child in the ninth month of gestation is no more, has no more moral significance than the removal of an appendix or of a tumor uh, are missing something. And the, what, what has changed in this country has not been changed by argument, it's been changed by Siemens and General Electric by the makers of better sonograms. Uh, people now see a nine-week-old fetus that has moving fingers and a beating heart, and they say, that looks awfully like a baby. And that, that has changed the argument in a way that I think uh, over time will be very, very effective. Is the conservative argument primarily... I don't think the conservative argument is necessarily against uh, third trimester abortions is against abortions, period, though, right? There are some, like, there are some and, and by the way... I mean, that's the are, argument used politically, of course. That's right. There, right. Look, but there are conservatives who are pro-choice and there are liberals who are right to life. Mm -hmm. This is not a, a, an issue that cleanly falls. Is uh, it more a Republican Party issue? You feel more sure. than a conservative it, issue? It, 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 it is impossible for someone to seek the Republican presidential nomination who's not pro-life, and it is equally impossible mm -hmm. for a Democrat who is pro-life to seek the Democratic nomination. Um, I wonder if this is more of an issue of the 14th Amendment, uh, the whole issue of abortion. I don't know if it's been tested in that way. What are the rights of the individual themselves, both the women, and does the fetus actually have 14th Amendment rights? Yeah, that's, that's, that's why there have been personhood amendments. Sure. <coughs> And the personhood amendment is a, is fraught with problems, yeah. because then a, a pregnant woman who uh, drinks excessive alcohol is is it guilty of child abuse? And it, you know, just but only if the if the fetus is designated as a person under the Fourteenth Amendment. That's correct. Right. Which is why you don't want to designate the fetus <laughs> right. as a person. It's very interesting these uh, arguments. All right, what's our next question? I wanted to say that uh, I've been reading you since I was a teenager, and while I don't, didn't always agree, I did love your efforts to uh, convince me. I wanted to know, you at the beginning you talked about the president being really just an ex executor, he's the executive, but then you spent most of your talk talking about presidents. What is your prescription for Article 1? Article 1 was the, uh, uh, the, the Congress for a reason, I think, because it was supposed to be su supreme. What's your prescription for breaking what is clearly a deadlock in the... We, we could get... Congress has to be forced to go back to accepting its supremacy under our system. One way to do this... 
One way to do this would be for the Supreme Court to breathe life back into the non-delegation doctrine that says the Congress simply cannot delegate to the executive branch essentially legislative powers. Presidents under both parties have been given by Congresses controlled by both parties essentially legislative powers. Mm -hmm. This president is doing what other presidents have done. With he's, imp he's raising taxes unilaterally. Tariffs are taxes paid by Americans collected at the border. And they can do this because we've given vast discretion to presidents under the, the ability to declare an emergency or the ability to declare an economic necessity. So Congress has to begin to claw back the powers it has given away, and they can be encouraged to do that if the Supreme Court will enforce the non-delegation doctrine. That the first substantive words of our Constitution, that is the first words after the preamble, are all legislative powers herein granted shall be given to a, legis to, to a Congress of the United States. And I think it says bigly right after that. Right? Sorry? <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> so that's part of it. But you see, what Madison assumed, he says in Federalist 51, we see throughout our system of checks and balances the process of supplying by opposite and rival interests the defect of better motives. That is, we don't expect the government to be staffed with saints. We expect it to be staffed by proud, self-interested people who will defend their institutions' rights and prerogatives. He assumed that the House would fight with the Senate and the House and the Senate would fight with the executive branch and that this would be healthy. What's happened to, sh to short-circuit the separation of powers is that Congress is so busy trying to do so many things that it doesn't have time to do, and so preoccupied with getting reelected, which is why I favor term limits, uh, that Congress uh, has simply given away powers to the federal government, to the executive branch. For example, I'll say, we believe America ought to have quality education. You guys in the executive branch write the details. We believe in a clean environment. You over there fill in the blanks, but it's mostly blanks. If you walk into Senator Lee of Utah, his, uh, his office, you'll see two stacks of paper. One's about that high. And that is all the laws passed by a Congress in a given session. The other stack is eight feet high. Those are the rules and regulations generated by the administrative state during the same time period, which gives you a graphic demonstration of how you're actually ruled. You're not ruled by Congress, you're ruled by powers given away by Congress to unaccountable, unknown, faceless, permanent bureaucracies. The deep state. Um, all right, who's next? Hello. Um, First of all, I'd like to thank you both for such a wonderful and interesting discussion tonight. Uh, Mr. Will, I was very interested in your description of how the American system sort of puts guardrails um, against majority will. And in that light, I was curious as to what you think the relative uh, strengths and weaknesses are of the 17th Amendment and what you might ideally like to do about it. 17th Amendment is, tell them. Oh, the direct election of senators. Yes. Uh, 
When Lincoln and Douglas debated in the 1858 presidential campaign in Illinois, no one listening to them could vote for them because they were elected by the state legislatures. Mm -hmm. They were until 19, uh, 1912 or 1913, I guess, when they passed that. I, I wish they had not done that. I, 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 I mean, I know a lost cause when I see one. I'm a Cub fan. Yeah, it's but, been 1912, um, for Christ's sakes. But uh, I think uh, having the senators elected by state legislators was a good thing because it buttressed the federal structure of the United States and gave a, a different kind of constituency. We have the House directly elect, uh, elected by small constituencies, and, and as the founders did it, we had senators indirectly elected uh, by state legislators, and I thought it was healthy, and, it, and I think it worked. But uh, again, I know a lost cause. I've been an advocate of so many of them. We have time for two more questions. Great. Um, so to bring back your analogy, of, or your image, rather, of the football field with everyone kind of being in between the 40s, um, I'm still a pretty strong believer that everyone does sit within those 40s. And throughout my lifetime, it kind of seems like there's been a pendulum as a gauge that more or less every time it swings one way, the other side's there to smack it back even harder the first, uh, on the other side. What would be your way of kind of correcting that error to stop the momentum? How would you clap back? Well, I, th I think you're right, by the way, that I, th I think there is a pendular effect in our politics, and I think the center is real, and the center gets heard sooner or later. Uh, so I don't despair of... of uh, I, I mentioned in response to your question that, in, in fact, the nominating process is undermining the role of the center, but I think the center can reassert itself. I think our political parties are very sensitive market mechanisms, or to change an analogy that you people are familiar with, they're seismographs. And uh, they respond to almost every tremor of opinion and, and, uh, and, and properly, with proper rules, we'll get back to, to hearing to this, the, uh, the center of the country. The most interesting example of this right now is the democratic nominating process that you're witnessing because uh, there are very few, very little attention being given to the candidates other than Mr. Biden who tried to speak to the center. Uh, nothing gets a political party in this country's attention quite so surely as a thorough, sound defeat. And uh, if the Democrats nominate someone who really frightens the, the, the country back into the arms of the current president, uh, the Democratic Party will find that a really educational moment. But you could have made this argument about Trump. When, you know, they had 12 people on that stage, you know, the Republicans. Everyone thought... They had 18 on that 18, stage. 18, you know, but this exact same argument was yep. made. What's wrong with these Republicans? Are you serious? You want that guy to be the face of the party? You're going to go down in defeat for the next 10 elections. Yeah, of course, he, he, never, he didn't get a majority of the votes in the primaries. He, he won precisely because there were 18 people out there. And because there were 18 people on stage, the most lurid stood out. But uh, on, the 
on the Democratic side, Andy's in the White House. On the That's Democratic the on the Democratic side, I mean, when people begin their campaign, I won't mention Senator Harris's name, but when people people begin their campaigns with the, I have a really cool idea. Let's take away the private health insurance from 180 million Americans who rather like it. You begin to wonder. Uh, how serious these people are. Well, that's, yeah, that's politicking and pandering because it's a primary. Because Kamala Harris doesn't believe that. As soon as it came out of her mouth, she's like, Phew, I'm glad that's out of my mouth. <laughs> yes, yeah, she said, but she said in this... She yeah. took it back. She immediately took it back. She knew no, it was wrong. No, she didn't quite immediately. Yeah. She hasn't yet taken I'm it I'm saying back. she doesn't believe that is I what believe I'm saying. I believe that, right. but... Uh, no, I'm saying Kamala Harris... In, in that CNN town hall where yeah. she said... Let's get rid of private health insurance. She says right. it'll reduce the paperwork. Yeah. Yes, nothing <laughs> means reduce paperwork yeah. like turning it over to the government. Right. And then she said, you know, I talked to some people and I realized that's not what I think. Hmm. So there you go. But and that's I, part of, that's, I, see, I think all politicians do a version of that myself. So, um, our final, one more beer. Our final question for the evening. Uh, Mr. Will, when did the uh, judiciary become so political? I, you know, I don't think it is political as, as other people think. I, I know the current president says there are Obama judges and Trump judges and all the rest. Um, we have been fighting about the proper way to construe the Constitution since the 1790s. Thomas Jefferson founded the University of Virginia primarily to produce lawyers of the sort he liked because he despised his distant cousin, John Marshall. Uh, so the, the idea, I don't, but I don't call that politicizing the judiciary. I don't think judges vote parties. Look, people, judges have different sensibilities. We all have different sensibilities. We cluster and we call the, in political argument, we call those political parties, our two clusters. But in, in the schools of argument over how to construe the Constitution, originalist, textualist, living constitutional, there are dozens of them now, and the, and, and the shadings are important. And so I don't think there's a binary choice the way there is in our politics. Obviously, Judges of a certain persuasion are going to rule alike and others not alike, but uh, I don't think that the four justices uh, appointed by Democratic presidents who all vote alike more often than not are doing it for political reasons. I think they're doing it because they're following their convictions about how the Constitution ought to be construed. And I feel the same way about those on 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 the conservative side. Uh, so I, I think it's a mistake to call it politics. It's it's something else. It's more intellectual. It's more interesting, and more defensible. Is it more to the point that not so much about their character or, or why they're voting a certain way, but who's choosing them? Like people knowing that they're going to vote a certain way, like Mitch McConnell. I mean, if he felt it doesn't matter, he certainly would have let Obama pick his Supreme Court justice. But he knows it was important for him to pick because he knows how he wants that justice to vote. Yes. Uh, so in that sense, it is political, right? Part, yeah, partly because we have, we have 
again, because Congress doesn't want to deal with it, we have offloaded so many important decisions in our society onto the, onto the courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the courts, in some cases, are just going to say, no, sorry, it's not our job. You're going to have to do it. Well, I want to thank Mr. Will and his book, The Conservative Sensibility. George Will, man. American Institution.